You're listening to Money and Meaning, Unlikely Allies, Building New Markets for Impact. With your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Alex Kravitz. Check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. Let's join the conversation. Welcome back to Money and Meaning. I'm your host, Alex Kravitz. For today's episode, we're bringing you a great panel from SoCap19 entitled Investing in Workforce Tech Without Losing Your Shirt. As the name implies, all of the speakers on today's episode are investors, though they bring a variety of different perspectives from nonprofits to for-profit, from impact-first funds to funds seeking above-market-rate returns. While their investment philosophies differ, they all agree that Automation, robotics, and other technological advances are going to drastically impact the workforce landscape, with lowest income workers being the most vulnerable. So they are all investing in companies that are working to create new pathways to prosperity and middle class jobs, whether through upskilling, credentialing, or other means that they'll get into in more detail. Featured on today's panel, we have Gene Shah from the Autodesk Foundation, who also moderates the discussion. Eamon Anderson from Acumen America, Jason Palmer from New Markets Venture Partners, Sonali Kothari from JFF Labs, part of Jobs for the Future, and Elizabeth Garlow from Lumina Impact Ventures. So let's jump into the discussion. So welcome, everyone. Uh, Thank you for joining us today to talk about uh, workforce tech and an investor's perspective. My name is Jean Shaw. I'm head of portfolio and investment at the Autodesk Foundation. And today we're joined uh, with a group of panelists who are some of the most active investors in workforce tech, including Jason Palmer from New Markets Venture Partners, Eamon Anderson from Acumen America, Sonali Kotari from JFF Labs, and Elizabeth Garlow from Lumina Impact Fund. So to kick off our conversation, I thought I'd bring in some recent headlines that are coloring the conversation around future of work. This one comes from Bloomberg, just October 4th of this year. Robots are catching up to humans in the jobs race. Another one from the New York Times. Evidence that robots are winning in the race for American jobs. And then another headline with a different tone. Where are workers when we talk about future of work? This is from the American Prospect. So with that as a a general context uh, in terms of both voices from our society saying it's a race to the bottom between workers and machines, as well as workers are getting left behind, where is the equity issue and the worker and the human voice in all of this. So that as a starting point, I'm going to join you guys on the chair uh, and ask each of you to uh, introduce yourselves by way of of two questions. One, what should the world know about each of you as a workforce tech investor, and what problems are you trying to solve? Jason, sure. Please. So I'll jump in. So uh, I'm Jason Palmer with New Markets Venture Partners, as you mentioned, 
and we're a Series A and B investor. We've been around about 15 years, and we invest in companies. Historically, they've only been education companies, but in the last five years, we now call ourselves an education and workforce investor, and we've made our first five investments in companies that kind of bridge that education workforce divide. Now, in terms of what we look for, what we're looking for, we, we definitely see this trend towards, uh, you know, bifurcation in the economy that you've read about in many articles towards, you know, uh, more hourly workers and then more of these salaried jobs, but salaried jobs not being filled that are kind of half tech, half service jobs. So we've invested in companies that are at the forefront of credentialing because we see that uh, there's a faster growth in credentials that yield 50K or higher jobs uh, than there are in uh, the number of degrees being minted each year. So more certifications, more certificates, more micro-credentials. Those are actually mattering in the labor force and actually allowing people to get what are pretty broadly now called new collar jobs. Um, so blue collar jobs were the path to the middle class in the 50s and 60s. New collar jobs, which are kind of technology plus an empathy service component, that's where most of the 50 to 75K jobs are, and so we invest in that. The other trends we're investing in are on this uh, soft skills, or sometimes now called power skills dimension. We've invested in a virtual reality in education and workforce company there that's both training teachers before they go into the classroom to do a simulation in front of a kind of a mock classroom in a simulated environment. It's also being used to train, uh, to do leader training at McKinsey. It's being used to do uh, customer service training at places like Best Western. So the credentialing company is called Credly, and the virtual reality empathy training company is called Mersion. And I'll, I'll talk to you about the other three companies when we get a little further. Um, hello, everyone. My name is Eamon Anderson from Acumen. Gene, thank you and Autodesk for having us here. Really excited for this conversation. Acumen's mission is to change the way the world tackles poverty, and we've been doing that for almost 20 years by investing in entrepreneurs around the globe that are building innovative businesses uh, that serve low-income communities worldwide. Um, uh, I joined Acumen almost 11 years ago uh, in Nairobi, and but four years ago, we launched Acumen America, uh, and for the first time brought this idea that entrepreneurs hold an important set of keys to the innovative uh, changes that we need in the future for a more equitable and just world. That That's a reality that's very much true here in the U.S. as well. And so we've been building out this portfolio, uh, now invested in 19 companies, and this theme of work is very much at the core of what we're, what we're building here with Acumen America. Um, so what you need to know about me as an investor, Acumen as an investor, you know, we're looking for innovative models that are predominantly serving the 100 million Americans that live in households that are in less than $50,000 a year. Uh, there's not enough innovation, there's not enough capital that's targeting uh, these households, yet these are the folks that are being uh, left behind all too often. Um, as I think about this theme of work, you look back 50, you know, for, prior to 50 years ago, there was a, a coupling of productivity and, and wages, and then 50 years ago, those have uncoupled, and wages have grown only marginally since then. Yet prices for some of the most expensive slices of our pocketbook pie chart have gone only up, so healthcare, education, uh, housing, these have all uh, significantly outpaced the, the moderate rise in wage growth over that time. Um, so, and you see the, change, the nature, changing nature of work simultaneously, manufacturing jobs on the decline, and it's not just robust and it's not just uh, Lyft and Uber drivers that are replacing those, but increasing hourly workers, as Jason mentioned. Um, you know, the, the, what I think about here is, you know, there's an atomizing of work and a change that's, that's, that will be taking place. And what I worry about is that those most 
vulnerable are the lowest income communities here uh, in this country. And we're building an investing thesis that's backing companies that are ensuring that all Americans have an opportunity to participate in the opportunity and the good jobs of the future. Hi, everyone. So um, Employment Technology Fund is solely focused on workforce tech or employment technology. I work for Jobs for the Future and JFF Labs, which is part of a nonprofit that has been working in education and workforce for 36 years, 46 states, program, policy, practice. And we built JFF Labs to really bridge the innovative approaches of forward-thinking leaders and entrepreneurs to traditional systems like community colleges, workforce boards, and of course we knew that part of supporting entrepreneurs was um, investing in them financially. So two months ago, ETF became ETF at JFF Labs. And what's important to know is definitely that we are an impact first investor, that um, we are focused on this population and we're seeing really exciting innovations um, we are a catalytic funder, so we are investing really early with non-recoverable grant dollars. That's the role that we play. We hope that will you know, bring more investors into the space, traditional and non-traditional. Uh, really exciting that the first set of investments that ETF made, um, diversity and inclusion, was really a focus, and we have... 50% founders who are women and in our portfolio and 60% who are people of color. Uh, so there's a lot of opportunity here and really excited to keep talking about what's going to push this, this space forward. Great. Um, hi, everyone. My name is Elizabeth Garlow. Um, so I work with the venture investing arm of Lumina Foundation. Lumina is a private foundation that is focused on building um, a more robust post-secondary education system in this country. And so what we're looking at is how to bolster education attainment in the U.S. with a focus on closing education attainment gaps by race, ethnicity, and income in particular. And so when we look at the Great Recession and what happened, the vast majority, over two-thirds of people who lost their jobs in that period, did not have a post-secondary credential. So there's some evidence around the impact uh, and need for post-secondary education as a mechanism to build a resilient career and livelihood. At the same time, we know the post-secondary education system is necessarily evolving um, and should evolve in order to meet the needs of the workforce, in order to provide people with affordable, uh, quality post-secondary education experiences. And so what the foundation is doing is through a grant-making strategy, through a policy strategy, and through our impact investing work, we are trying to open up learning pathways for individuals to get them a credential that leads to further education and employment. So through our um, impact investing strategy, we've invested in 13 companies across the US that are doing things like building new credentialing infrastructure. They are alternative education providers that are working with employers and colleges and universities to solve key pay pain points, develop new pedagogical models, and try to meet learners where they're at. Um, I think what's interesting with this conversation is we've seen really sort of three categories emerging in this education and workforce technology investment space. One is this sort of huge explosion of informal learning tools and mechanisms. So if you think about the penetration of mobile devices and the ways that's changed our education landscape, the number of people using and going to informal learning tools and the ways those are being packaged um, to actually deliver new skills and competencies. 
The second is workplace learning. So we know right now, especially given the current conditions of the labor market, that there is a demand. I think it's estimated that by 2020, we'll have about a $31 billion market demand for workplace learning in this country. Um, so a number of uh, employers are launching new education benefit programs, tuition programs, et cetera. And then the third that we look at really is the incumbent education providers. So how do we make investments in companies that are working with colleges and universities to help them better serve their student populations? Great. Thank you, everyone. That was really comprehensive. I want to drill down a little bit to the end beneficiary of this work, not necessarily the customer per se, but the end beneficiary, and I have a short anecdote. Yesterday, my uh, Lyft driver and I had a very long conversation, and uh, he is someone who lost his job as a security guard who works 14 hours a day. Now he's driving Lyft. Uh, he has some, he's a high school graduate with some trade school training, but no college degree of any sort, and so can the in solutions you're investing in help Reginald? And can you make money as impact investors doing that? Yes. yes. So the most recent re research from RTI Consulting is that there's 1,010 boot camps around the country now. And most people are reading about boot camps in the form of uh, tech boot camps, learning to be a coder, data scientist, developer, et cetera. But these boot camps actually range far more widely than that. Uh, we've invested in a company called Climb Credit that actually provides, uh, last year we provided loans to 10,000 people like Reginald, more than 70% of them did not have a college degree, to go to these one month to 12 month boot camps, uh, oftentimes in blue collar or kind of mixed collar is what we're calling it, uh, jobs that involve some technical sales and some, and, and, and I say technical, it could be pile driver, uh, it could be truck driver, but not your regular truck. This could be a refrigerated truck with lots of different compartments and you need to know how to use technology. There are, uh, at best estimate, about 40,000 jobs that were created in that boot camp uh, industry mm -hmm. last year. It's growing at about 25 to 50% per year and you don't have to have a college degree, but as long as you apply yourself over a one to 12 month period, you could get a loan to do that. You could even get an ISA, which is an income share agreement to take those programs. Then these will just continue to accelerate. Some are in college, but most of them are outside of traditional colleges. Yeah, I, I, yes, yes and I hope so, I think my <laughs> two answers. Um, I, I am heartened by the opportunities that we've seen. We've had the opportunity to co-invest with Jason in New Markets and Climb, are big fans of the work that they're doing. I mean, I think that there is a, a transformation in our skills delivery ecosystem that's taking place and with the emergence of boot camps for X and Y and Z. And um, I think that, you know, the model we have for too long pushed folks into a quarter million dollars of debt to pursue a degree that may not have a positive ROI. And so I think we've not just failed Reginald because, you know, we've made pathways to good skills um, inaccessible, but we've also prescribed a solution that doesn't always work for everyone. And many of the folks who start four-year degrees don't finish. And, the, and you know, it just isn't working and it's leaving some people worse off. Um, you, you take this debt and you don't leave with a degree. And so I think there needs to be a new model that 
is more bite-sized and is more nimble and folks can, you know, whether it's through your employer or otherwise, you can have a more iterative approach to skills development because I think the shelf life will will shorten. But I don't think that jobs are going to be eaten up overnight by the, by the computers. Uh, you know, I think that jobs will change and will change very quickly. There will always be trucking jobs. May not be, you know, someone sitting in a rig, maybe someone sitting in front of a monitor. And I think, you know, the question is how do we make sure we are preparing folks, you know, to make that transition within these industries. You know, the other piece for me is also like, you know, you mentioned where is a worker voice. You know, how do we make sure there's agency in all this, that we don't just continue to have a paternalistic model where we're prescribing solutions, where pathways are clear, but then there's agency for job seekers to pick what works best for them. Clarity on how much that's going to cost, clarity on how much that's going to pay off, but really putting the power back in job seekers' hands so that they can navigate this new reality. I'm trying to figure out how to argue, but we're, we're very aligned here on the stage. So um, I'll say yes and, and maybe build on talking about the challenges, the, the statistic that Elizabeth brought up before about the recession and the job recovery. That was 1% of those who lost their jobs in this category. That was about a little over 5 million adults. In 2016, only 1% of those, of those re jobs were recovered. There, they had jobs. There is a barrier that is really different than most of us have who are advantaged. And we've seen more investment in the blue collar jobs that we talked about than we have in this for this population. But what we're seeing is that technology can be what is used to really enable these barriers to move. And there's um, the first seven companies in the ETF portfolio um, were able to participate in field testing um, through our work and across the country really we partnered with World Ed who was able to really see these solutions out in the country and we've published a report around what worked and you can see that what worked and what we learned and what we're trying to do by developing these solutions and these companies is product, product thinking about human-centered design and what these populations need. So everything from, you know, nudging and making sure that there's appropriate onboarding. I mean, these populations are not all the same, right? They're, they're women, they are immigrants, they are those who don't have the same digital literacy skills, but there are technology-enabled features to all of the work that we're doing that are wrapped around these really powerful technologies. So this report is out there. I encourage people to look at the report. Um, so I think there's a yes and, and there's a, there are still barriers. And I know we'll, you know, we'll probably talk about this, but examples like, you know, companies needing to hear about these solutions and adopt them into their hiring employing practices. And this is just around old mindset and new mindset. Um, just a few days ago, we, our acceleration program, part of JFF Labs, um, did a scan of assessments. I think assessments are super exciting and they will probably do a better job than humans do in thinking about who, who can get good, the right jobs and skill matching. So, you know, there's, there's so much potential that we're just beginning, but it's very early and we need cross-sector solutions and multiple players at the table in order to change so that those headlines that we're hearing about are fake news. Well, the only thing I'd add is, um, you know, when you take a, like Reginald's story, I, I was also thinking about, so I have, I'm from Detroit, Michigan. I've had several family members go through multiple layoff rounds in the automotive industry. And that's sort of at the heart of where 
there's a lot of just kind of really rapid transformation and required skills and and really um, I think it's quite clear that incumbent education and training and workforce providers aren't keeping pace with the demand for upskilling and reskilling. And so that's why you see this sort of burst in interesting innovative approaches, the 1010 boot camps that have emerged and other types of alternative providers. What I think is important, I guess two things that maybe concern me. So one is the ways in which these myriad types of providers are not connected with formal credentialing infrastructure or incumbent players that are accredited institutions that can issue a credential. Now, we can have this debate and it's an active and live conversation, how much does a, a formal credential matter in the economy today and moving forward? Um, but as we engage with a number of these alternative education providers, I'm often asking them about their journey to accreditation and what that looks like and how that how we can actually remove some of the friction in that process as well. Because some of these new education and training models can put appropriate pressure on our incumbent players to change and to be much more learner-centered. Um, so that's one thing. Um, the other thing I, I think about actually is just the, the working learning blended models that we're seeing and how important those are. This country has been so reticent to adopt apprenticeships. There's a cult, there are cultural barriers and challenges to that, but we see a lot of evidence from other parts of the world that I think we should learn from on the role and value of work-based learning and apprenticeships connected to formal education and training. And so this is where I think the boot camps and others are doing a tremendous job is thinking about those education industry partnerships and we need to see community colleges in particular and other educators doing more of that. Great, you guys are giving me hope. Maybe if we could kind of highlight, I think we've surfaced a lot of similarities and similar approaches and identifying opportunities in some key areas. Is there anything that you would highlight uh, in terms of your approaches to the workforce investment landscape like that differentiates uh, you from each other, you know, in terms of like, are, are you all going to be investing all in the same deals at the same time? Where, where are the differences so that people kind of know how to understand the investor landscape? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, so I, we, we invest both in work and in health and in financial services as well. You know, I do think that as we compare this future of work, workforce tech theme to those other sectors, it's relatively uh, underdeveloped in, in our experience to those other sectors that we're investing in. I think probably even less than uh, traditional ed tech. Um, and so I think, you know, we have co-invested with everybody up here. We've looked at many of the same deals. We're invested in Climb. We're, you know, invested in Bright Hive. <laughs> so, you know, but none of us have the, yeah, it takes, and, but that's exactly my point. I think that, you know, th this is, I wish there were a lot more people that we could, you know, we had a bigger stage and more people to put on it. And compared with the, you know, the ecosystem that can really nest an entrepreneur to build a, a scalable, impactful, you know, profit-creating business in, in other sectors, um, you know, is not yet here. And I think we're all driving at the uh, at the forefront of that, but it's it, it's not enough. And I think you know one of the, the com one of the com reasons I'm excited for this conversation and to have all of you here in this room is to talk about how we bring more folks to to, to this work and more folks that are thinking specifically with this lens of equity around how we invest in, in the future of work. So, you know, I think about you know what's Acumen's differentiator. I mean, we are also invest in pursuit of mission. You know, much like uh, others on the stage, we also look at early stage, pre seed, seed, Series A as well. I think we also look to roll up our sleeves and try to be uh, active post-investment 
and um, sitting on boards of companies that we invest in and really trying to accompany these these businesses to success. And you know that's no small feat. Um, but it's also not something that we can do alone. And I think to be able to co-invest with ETF with, with, with any of the folks here next to me is a real gift to us because there's a real complementary set of value. And what I see that it, that's a you know a model for success for an entrepreneur is to be able to you know put a series of directors, a series of investors around the board uh, table or on the cap table uh, that's you know together and are going to build a complementary set of skills that are going to allow them to succeed because it's a it's a it's it's a very steep uphill climb. Can I just make one quick sure, comment absolutely. on that point? So we um, we did a we commissioned a report with Learn Launch in 2018 that looked at this sort of emerging workforce tech sector, like what is this thing? Is it a real sector? Is it investable, et cetera? And um, they found that there were 240 new companies formed between 2015 and 2018 that identified as workforce ed tech, sort of a blend, and that collectively they had raised about $2.9 billion, but that 70% of them had raised under 5 million. So like this just goes to show, I mean, this is reflected in the types of investors you see up here. We tend to be pretty early stage investors. I think the the verdict is out on how, as these companies mature, how they will have access to growth capital, you know, what, what the sort of later stage landscape might look like from a funding perspective. So two differences I would highlight are that, so New Markets has always been and started out as an education investor and we, we got pulled by the changes in the economy into the workforce. And so when we look at things, like I noticed that the, the demand for tech jobs that is so hungry that it's creating these thousand boot camps, it has reached all the way down into third grade. And so when I go into third grade classrooms, they're teaching kids Python. And the first time I saw that, I thought this is absolutely nuts. These parents and teachers have gone crazy, Why? but these kids learn languages quite easily, and actually Python is a great language to learn if you're a third grader, and I've been persuaded. And so we have not yet invested in a uh, computer science elementary school, middle school, high school uh, company yet, but I have a great market map of the 12 companies, and I'm keeping my eye out, and eventually we will make a great investment in that area. Um, and so we're not just thinking of the adults, we're thinking all the way through the whole system. The other thing that's an awesome trend, which is you know evident here uh, in all the, the panels, is that impact investing is no longer kind of a niche seed thing uh, anymore. You know, when you have big players like KKR and TPG and Bain, you know, making big splashes with very large pools of capital, that means that, um, in fact, uh, new markets and SJF, um, DBL, a number, there's, there's now 38 different uh, impact capital managers who are willing to stand up and say, we are double bottom line, we are focused both on financial returns and impact um, equally, uh, we are not a foundation, we are not in this to um, just do good. We believe that you can have market-based solutions that actually do help millions of people, um, and we now have 20 years of track record combined between the 38 uh, impact investors in that group. Um, that, that, that we're, uh, you know, I, I like to think of us as part of that class, which now represents about 10 billion in capital, and it's growing, probably will be 20 billion in capital by the time of SOCAP next year. Um, and so, you know, we're, we are, we are all about market rate or better returns and investing in companies that can really improve people's lives. And that does make us a little bit different, I think, than some of the other folks on the panel. Great. So maybe expanding the conversation a little bit um, in terms of um, what I would call uh, social determinants of work, um, the kind of 
uh, maybe wraparound services that you sometimes see um, in conjunction with investments, whether it's you're not only provide investing in a solution to help upskill someone or um, provide better access to career opportunities, but um, to what degree do you also have to take into consideration th things like serving populations with lots of barriers to employment, including healthcare, childcare, transportation, et cetera? Does that factor into your investment in, in, and how? Yeah, you know, this is a really interesting one for me. We, you know, we started out thinking about this social determinants theme in our health investing and the social determinants of health have become a little sub-sector within healthcare and health tech and health investing. Um, and it's really, you know, what are all the upstream influences that have, uh, have that can affect uh, health outcomes and how can, and we've invested actively in that as a theme in our health portfolio. But what, what's interesting and one of the, what I've realized is that you know, if you try to medicalize the, you know, house, access to housing and access to jobs and access to food and access to childcare, that actually constrains the, the impact that all of these social determinants have in someone's life. I and mean, these are the same things that are the social determinants to work and the social determinants to wealth. And so, you know, I think what's hard about it is, you know, where do you draw the line? That's a pretty expansive, how do you build an investment strategy that, you know, encapsulates, you know, all of these upstream influences that determines whether someone can live a healthy life or find a, a productive and livable uh, job and, and be able to build wealth for, for their family. And I think that's a real challenge. I mean, where we do see it, and I think where it's been clear, is you know backing models. And I think some of the innovative training models are a great example about where they are meeting learners where they are, knowing who you're serving, what their needs are, and, and meeting those. I don't think you can be successful. We can't be successful in backing uh, companies that are serving those 100 million Americans living in households that are in less than $50,000 a year, unless you're developing these innovative training models. And so we've invested in a company called Bitwise and Fresno co-invested uh, with Lumina and others uh, in this company. And uh, you know what what they do is they have it's at its core it's a technology training model. And so they are uh, building a technology training solution that meets the needs of the sons and daughters of farm workers in the Central Valley. But they've recognized that to do that in Fresno, you can't just build a boot camp, plop it down in Fresno, you know, wipe your hands and wait for success. Um, you've actually got to really cultivate an ecosystem. And so they built a physical space that's attracted all the technologists and innovators. To one physical, to multiple physical spaces now. I think there's four buildings in Fresno. Um, they've also created an incubation model where they're helping build businesses that can create jobs. They've launched apprenticeship models. They're building a consulting company so that if a, a person of color is still subjected to the bias of a, of a technology employer, they're less subject to bias. If you actually hire that consulting company and see that they're a killer coder, um, then that bias, you know, you have you can you hire them, <laughs> and they're starting to see that. But they are, but also what they're doing is you know thinking about how do we address transportation, how do we address Care. How do we meet these folks where they are, build solutions that work for them, drop the price point? I mean, they really are being creative in hiring people that can really look to, to create these you know, holistic wraparound services that can meet folks where they are. But it's not just about bringing social services into workforce. It's really about thinking creatively and in an audacious way around what kind of business models are required to do this. And to, you know, to build a coding boot camp in Fresno requires transforming the economy of that, of that city. I don't want to belabor this too much, but I think that's really well said. And the only uh, a couple of things that I would add. So, the more we look to try and serve adults with little or no post-secondary education, the more childcare, in particular, the cost of childcare in this country becomes a massive barrier. 
Um, and I think we are uh, starting to try and think creatively. <laughs> so to Eamon's point, we are not, we don't have the expertise to invest across all of the social determinants of work, education and work, but we're trying to think creatively about how we can use our convening power to help schools think a little bit differently about addressing these costs beyond tuition. Um, so one thing we're doing is helping schools think about opportunity zone investments that do catalyze more affordable student housing. Um, we have some HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities that we're working with on teaching hotel concepts um, on or adjacent to their campuses so that individuals are provided with housing as well as much like a teaching hospital, um, hospitality training programs. Um, and then we have seen some new uh, technology companies that are trying to tackle this issue. So for example, there's a company we've, we, we have invested in called Edquity, which is aggregating all sorts of emergency aid resources for students that are looking at issues of food insecurity and housing insecurity. And there's a huge surge in, surge in the number of uh, schools that are adopting emergency aid funds. And they're kind of lacking sophisticated mechanisms to target and disperse that funding. So this is where kind of new technology providers in particular are solving some of these interesting pain points because we do need, much like social determinants of health, as Eamon is saying, has kind of gotten this big lift from a narrative perspective, I think we need the equivalent as well on education and work. Great, so um, before I turn it over to the audience for questions, I'm gonna just end on a final one. Where do you all think we are in the evolution of this field, workforce tech investing? First inning. This is just the beginning. Now, there was a previous game that happened over the last 40 years, but that game is done and a new game has started. Um, I mean, the fact that you, Autodesk, and you're not alone, there are probably 50 employers, actually JFF probably knows exactly how many, because you're, <laughs> you're doing that uh, employer network building, that now realize they're gonna need to upskill their workforce, they need to think in terms of a people-centered economy, um, now, I'm curious to see if this lasts once a recession hits, but I do think the companies that really think of their people as their most valuable resource are the ones that are gonna generate the most value in the long run, are gonna be the most successful companies. And just to take a somewhat radical example that I, I'm not sure if this will end up happening, but if Uber finally realizes that all those people are not drivers, but are actually their capital, Imagine what all those people could do. So your Lyft driver who you were talking about earlier, remind me of his name? Reginald. Reginald. So all the Reginalds out there, what if they were being upskilled to do other things in all the hours of the day that they have? And I'm not talking about Uber Eats. That's not the right solution. It's really putting yourself in the mind of all the Reginalds and what upskilling do they need through YouTube-like or other micro-credential platforms so that they can do more with what time that they have. Um, there's, a, there's a whole gigifying of the economy that if Reginald could really control his schedule and figure out the way to maximize his earning potential hour by hour, you know, that's just like unlocking an unused bedroom in a house. We've now unlocked the potential of Reginald. And so I'm looking for companies that in little tiny scalable ways are figuring out how to turn Reginald into Reginald squared and profiting from it. Yeah, I agree that it's early. 
Um, but I'm also hopeful about the momentum that's building. I think that's right. You're seeing employers increasingly invested in innovative workforce solutions, and I think that's a really important move. And I, you know, I don't think it's just about, you know, I think there is in a 3% unemployment environment, there is a talent um, uh, incentive that's at play. But you know, what's also interesting to me is somebody like Autodesk where, you know, or Salesforce where, you know, your market is limited by how many people can use that sophisticated tool to be productive and create value. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm excited, you know, for partnering with Autodesk and thinking about others that, you know, not just thinking about how do we take our own direct employment footprint and leverage and think about how we can leverage that for a workforce of the future, but also think about what are the constraints, uh, you know, for our top line that the workforce, that, our, that, that the status quo workforce system is, you know, is, limit, is limiting us by. Um, so, you know, that, that's something that gives me hope. I also think that as we've seen, you know, over the last, you know, 20 years, this rise in ed tech innovation, that that's beginning to move sort of all the way up into this, you know, uh, lifelong learning and, you know, getting people into jobs and to other jobs. I think that's a trend that also, uh, that also gives me some hope. And, you know, and I think that there, you know, how will this survive the next recession? I think that's interesting. I, I, I think that that will, that will change this conversation a little bit, but that's also going to create uh, a huge demand for community colleges and, and these 1,010, you know, boot camps that are out there. And so the, the question for us now, and that's urgent and hopefully not too late, is that how do we make sure that, you know, is as we move to the next phase in this cycle, that we have that we are actively building this new model that's going to help folks you uh, reskill in a way that's going to prepare them to, for success when they re-enter the job market. And I think that's a, that's a hugely important question for us to tackle. Absolutely, and I, I think this question about is a recession going to slow this down is a true question. But I think that's not the bigger shifts that are causing us to need to invest in this area. Whether, whether a recession comes or not, right, companies need to tap the potential of all these people who, right now, we don't even have a good conversation about what the skills we have are and don't have. Mm -hmm. And that's something we're going to ha have to answer together, regardless of a recession, right? Even if we're in a strong economy, companies, for their self-interest, want to be able to grow and have a productive workforce and economy. So I really am seeing that although early, it's rapid. We are seeing employers and community colleges come to the table and develop new solutions. So, you know, just as an example to flip it on its head a little bit, we, we talk about now learning is going to happen with while you're on the job, right? We talk about work-based learning. So what does that mean for colleges and universities and what is their role? Um, with JFF, we, we partnered with um, Google who had built uh, IT certification trading for their workforce initially, realized that it made a lot of sense um, through .org to roll this IT certification out to a broader audience. They use Coursera as an online learning platform. Well, they realized that they need to scale and reach. They called JFF, and JFF actually was like, you know, how you can reach this population, and for this population to have the wraparound services that they need, community colleges. JFF, you know, and they, Google said, well, I don't know how to talk to community colleges. We're like, okay, we can call them up. So community colleges now working to really spread this really successful Google IT certification, which we started with 25 community colleges, but are now um, moving to 100 community colleges. So in this model, you know, the training, 
who's, who's playing the role of providing the content versus who's providing the distribution. I don't know, but it's a really creative and good solution where people are playing roles that are really strong with the worker learner mind. And there's way more work to be done. So now talking about the policy and the Pell Grants that we would want to be able to use and utilize to fund this work. So next big question really, I think, on the horizon or two are all around the financing of these models. So while the workers have multiple jobs that they can't give up, how are they paying for the training or getting paid for the training? And um, how are we going to be able to keep evolving these solutions so that the unit cost is right mm -hmm. for them to scale and for, for um, companies and employers to pick them up? No crystal ball in my hands, unfortunately, but there are three things I would keep an eye on as this field unfolds. So the first is pedagogy and learning science. So as we think about the emergence of new educational models, how are we thinking about the, the right combination of foundational skills, what some might call uniquely human skills, what some are calling soft skills, da, 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 da. Like how do we think of the right combination of those with the appropriate technical skills that immediately signal to the work, that, to the labor market what someone is capable of doing? And so from a learning science perspective, I think we need a lot more investment and time and energy in getting sophisticated on that front. The second is the payment model piece. So the combination of um, government, of households, of employers, and myriad other types of uh, individual stakeholders that will share the cost burden of education in society. And how do we think about the mix of those moving forward with the innovations of things like income share agreements, which are an emerging legal structure. There's the, you know, lot of unanswered questions about how those will be regulated, et cetera, but interesting to keep an eye on. Um, the third thing is what I would call skills assessment and portability. So as we think about machine learning and its sophistication in assessing someone's skills, we see a lot of new tools coming into the market, particularly those that have some sort of gamification component where they think that they can more accurately and adequately capture and assess what someone is capable of doing. The question, of course, becomes who verifies that? <laughs> and then how does that person get sort of recognized for what they're capable of doing? So they're, you know, we most of us probably have a LinkedIn account, right? Um, all those skills that we click on our LinkedIn profile, those aren't third-party verified. <laughs> and so there is this question of, well, whose responsibility is it to say, yes, this person is capable of doing this? And this is where we see this new kind of credentialing infrastructure, like digital badges in workplaces, where people actually say, hey, here's my skills profile. This is portable. I take it with me wherever I go in an increasingly dynamic labor market. So those are three areas where I see tremendous sort of need for attentiveness, um, curation, and thoughtfulness moving forward. Excellent. Well, please join me in thanking the panelists. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Money and Meaning. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. As always, if you're interested in learning more about any of the topics discussed, you can find additional resources on our blog at socialcapitalmarkets.net. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach me at moneyandmeaningpodcast at gmail.com, or you can reach out on any social media network where our handle is at SoCapMarkets. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode.
You've been listening to Money and Meaning, unlikely allies building new markets for impact. With your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Alex Kravitz. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are heard. To learn more, check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SoCapMarkets. Thanks for listening.